Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about artificial intelligence in cardiology with Dr. James Howard from Imperial College London. James and co-author Daryl Francis have written a really good review all about machine learning, uh, particularly as it applies to imaging, but we also touch on AI and cardiology more generally. The paper will be free for a few weeks after this podcast is released, so everybody can go and read it. Many thanks for continuing to leave positive reviews on iTunes and other podcast platforms. It really does raise our visibility and help us reach new listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show. But if you're ready, James, maybe I can start by asking you to introduce yourself for the whole audience. Uh, where do you work and uh, what do you do? Hi, so yes, I'm James Howard. I'm a clinical lecturer at Imperial College London and also a cardiology registrar. Um, in my day job, I am doing a fellowship in cardiac imaging, particularly MRI, but um, my research is focused around artificial intelligence and also separately to that, some working clinical trials. And James, I wanted to get you on the podcast uh, because you've written a couple of papers actually over the last two years, both concerned with machine learning. Uh, one's called Machine Learning with Convolutional Neural Networks for Clinical Cardiologists, and the other's a much more broader piece, all about AI in, in cardiology. And we'll get into some of those terms in a second about what they mean. But maybe we can start off with a very simple question. Uh, why should cardiologists care at all about artificial intelligence? That's a good question. Um, I think all of our practice is going to be affected by AI in the not too distant future. Some branches of cardiology much more than others. Um, cardiac imaging is probably the one where we will see the biggest changes most quickly. But I think in 10 years time, we're all going to be influenced by AI. And I think only really by understanding, at least in a superficial way, how it works, are you going to be able to appreciate the strengths and weaknesses just like how cardiologists do with all their other tools at their disposal. We all know the strengths and weaknesses of cardiac CT scanning versus invasive angiography versus stress echocardiography. And AI is going to be one of those tools where we just have to at least understand the basics to appreciate its, its role. And maybe we can uh, jump to a question that I was going to ask you in a little bit, but I'll ask you now because it makes more sense, I think, uh, given your introduction. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the differences uh, and what you mean between AI, machine learning and deep learning. Maybe that's a good introductory place to jump off. What do you mean by AI in the broadest sense? So AI is actually probably the hardest term to explain because it means different things to different people. Probably the simplest definition is AI refers to when we see computers performing tasks that we traditionally associate with only human intelligence. So taking in data and then making decisions based on that data in a similar way to humans would tend to weigh up what the best decision is. But it's a very vague term. Machine learning and deep learning are much more specific terms. So if we take machine learning, what that means is traditionally when we wanted a computer to solve a task, we would think about a series of steps that the computer should go through and we program those manually. And then the computer would just iterate over that list of steps and perform the task. Whereas in machine learning, it's a completely different paradigm. What we do is we don't tell the computer how to solve a problem. We just gives it lots of data 
and we allow it to learn how to best solve that problem for itself. So it has an algorithm of how to learn and it uses that to learn how to solve the task. And then deep learning is a form of machine learning where we use neural networks. So um, algorithms with a similar superficial structure to how the human brain works, um, it uses those specifically to solve the task. And many of us, in fact, maybe all of us will be familiar with things like the formula for predicting maximum heart rate during an exercise test and the way that we use things like the GRACE score with three or four different variables to give us an idea about uh, mortality and morbidity over the uh, time period, six months or a year. Can you tell us how those kind of scoring systems are constructed and how there's actually a short step really to take from there to machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. So maximum heart rate is a really nice example. So as I'm sure we all know, the, the basic formula for working at a patient's maximum heart rate is 220 minus their age. And the way that came about was someone got a lot of people of different ages to exercise to the highest level they could. And then they plotted a graph and they plotted age on the x-axis and maximum heart rate on the y-axis. And if you then just draw a line of best fit, you see that that slope goes down. And you can see that as someone gets a year older, their maximum heart rate tends to go down by one. So that the gradient of that line is minus one. And it crosses the x-axis, sorry, crosses the y-axis at uh, 220. So in other words, if your age is zero, it's 220. Now that is, if you do it with a computer, machine learning because you have not told the computer what the equation is or how to answer that question. You've given it the data and it's drawn the line of best fit for you. And so that's probably the most basic form of machine learning. We call that linear regression. And all that means is drawing a line of best fit. But actually when we talk about deep learning and things like that, it's not that dissimilar. The general idea is the same. Give it lots of data and hope that it can find an algorithm which sorts things out properly. And if you're talking about something like a risk score, then you're talking about logistic regression. Is that right? That's right. So in the same way you can have a continuous number out of your input. So if you feed in 58, your output is 220 minus 58. You can also have the number that comes out as a probability, which, as you all know, can range between zero, definitely won't happen, or 100% definitely will happen. Um, and you can have... Uh, mathematical techniques that mean that when you feed in a patient's age, it will give you their chance of death. Now, because that's bound by zero and a hundred, you can't use linear regression anymore because the line, straight line keeps going on to infinity. So the line has to curve. And um, we use a technique called logistic regression to allow that to happen. And let's talk a little bit about how these techniques can be used in imaging, which is the focus of your most recent paper. You talk about something called a convolutional neural network. You've briefly mentioned neural networks already. Uh, what's a convolutional neural network and how is it used to help us uh, interpret uh, cardiac images or indeed any images? So convolutional neural networks are a form of neural network. So if you could see them, you can't because they're in computer memory, but if you could see them, they would look very much like an animal brain. You've got lots of neurons and they're scattered in multiple layers with synapses between them. Now, neural networks have existed for many, many, many years, but only in the last decade have people come with this idea of a convolutional neural network, which 
is a very intimidating name, but actually it's very similar to how the mammalian visual cortex works. So I don't know if you remember the old experiments by Hubel and Weasel, but what they did was they got, I think it was a cat, and they stuck uh, various electrodes in the cat's brain, and they showed the cat um, various shapes. So, And they found that, for example, if they showed the cat a vertical line, um, there was one neuron in its brain that fired like crazy for a vertical line. And then there was another neuron quite near it, which fired like crazy for horizontal lines. And those were in the most superficial layer of the cat's visual cortex. If they stuck the needle in further, they found that to get the neurons there to fire, they had to feed it much more complex shape. So not just a line would do, but maybe another cat or a snake or a face or something. And so what they figured out by doing these experiments was that the visual cortex is arranged in layers. And the early layers are simple things like edge detectors. And then the later layers take all the edges it's found in a scene and they integrate them and they figure out that the structure must be a tree or a cat or a snake. And convolutional neural networks work like that. What they do is that they're very early, um, very soon after you feed in the data, they find things like edges. And then later on, they combine those features to make a decision about what's in the image. And it turns out they work really, really well. Um, and they are now superhuman in their ability to interpret visual scenes. So for example, this is what Tesla use in their self-driving cars to interpret a road scene. They use convolutional neural networks, but they're applicable to so many things, including cardiac imaging. And what kind of tasks can they do for us in cardiology in terms of imaging? You, you've mentioned that they can interpret the images, but presumably they can also quantify the images in some way and, and make interpretations about what might happen next. Exactly. So the first thing people use convolutional neural networks for was feed in an image, and then it give you a simple answer out. That might be a yes, no, but it could also be a category. So for example, you might feed in a lot of echocardiograms and it might tell you, oh, this is a four chamber, this is a two chamber, this is a parasternal short axis, something like that. The other thing though that they can do is they can actually produce another image which is transformed. And the most obvious application for this is you show it a four chamber view and it produces another image, but where all the pixels corresponding to the left ventricular wall are one color, the left ventricular cavity a different color, the left atrium another color, the right atrium another color. So it gives you a heat map. And this is therefore able to do segmentation. And therefore, it's, once you've done that, it's very easy to turn that into an automated measurement system. And by segmentation, for those who aren't so familiar with imaging, we mean basically quantification of some parameter within the image, be it, let's say, a calcium score or left atrial volume or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we, we use segmentation to say that we're taking an image and usually we're going to classify every pixel in that image as belonging to a certain class. So we might classify it as belonging to the left ventricular wall. And then all you need to do after that is count the pixels. If you count the left ventricular wall pixels, you've got left ventricular mass. If you count left ventricular cavity pixels, you've got left ventricular volume and so on. Perfect. And James, can you give us some examples of um, CNNs in practice in cardiology, maybe things in development or things that are already being widely used? I know these are used in oncology, for example, for uh, early detection of tumors versus benign disease. But what about in cardiology? So um, in my clinical practice, 
Um, whether I like it or not, I use convolutional neural networks uh, every week in MRI scanning. So a lot of the um, modern codec MRI software will automatically draw the infamous circles of the left ventricular endo and epicardial contours for you. Uh, they're not perfect, but they're a very good starting point, and it definitely reduces the burden on us. Um, but one thing that they also show is that when convolutional neural networks fail, they don't fail gracefully. Computers, unfortunately, don't have common sense. So the segmentation, 90% of the time looks great, but 10% of the time, 5% of the time, it fails in pretty wacky ways, and it definitely needs its hands holding. And um, other examples of AI in practicing cardiology in your table one in your most recent paper, I know you, you talk about many examples there, from even from the things that we're all familiar with uh, in ECG interpretation software. Um, any other examples that you think are perhaps going to be appearing in practice very, very soon? I think ECG is a common one. We're already seeing that actually in the form of the Apple Watch. So no one quite knows the Apple Watch algorithm, but the Stanford group have released a paper showing that Apple Watch data can be very accurately classified using a convolutional neural network. And a lot of people suspect that is what Apple is doing behind the scenes. We're sort of in a quiet period at the moment as we're trying to get convolutional neural networks from bench to bedside. Mm. There are thousands and thousands of papers of convolutional neural networks being used in medicine now, but actually relatively few packages have actually made them to the doctor's fingertips. Echocardiography is getting there. Cardiac CT I'm not aware of a commercial package, but OCT in the cath lab, for example, I believe Abbott's latest version of the OCT software does have artificial intelligence to help with segmentation. And I can only assume that will be a convolutional neural network. Why do you think it is that some of these, what sound like amazingly useful and helpful tools, uh, take so long to get into the clinic? Is, is it a regulatory issue, do you think, or is it a lack of trust uh, that the doctors and the, the operators using them? the so-called black box effect that I've heard talked about in deep learning. Where do you think the roadblocks are? Is it all of these? Uh, I think there is, it is that and so many more. The first thing is a lot of the people that write these papers are scientists first and um, often a lot of engineers. And they're often not the people that can find it very easy to get things from bench to bedside. The other thing is realistically, you don't, as a doctor, want to buy 20 different AI packages that can't speak to each other. It's got to be implemented in the workflow. So it's much easier for Abbott, for example, because they've sold you the OCT hardware for them to tack on an AI package that's usable. But realistically, people aren't going to be quite so happy in exporting their OCT images, putting it on a USB stick, loading it from the computer and then clicking the AI button. That doesn't actually improve workflow. But also, like you said, there's regulatory hurdles, there's the FDA. They're trying to make things easier. And in fact, there are some examples in America, um, particularly in um, cranial radiology for stroke detection, where some people feel AI models have got through the regulatory process a little bit too easily and their real world performance isn't good. And then finally, like you said, there's this black box issue. Doctors don't really like being told an answer by an AI that they don't agree with, with no explanation as to why it differs from them. 
Segmentation is not too bad because you can literally see the circles the computer is drawing. And if it says the volume's way higher than you think it is, you can see the circles it's drawing and figure out the right. difference. But if there's a case, for example, a cardiac MRI that you think is completely normal and the AI says cardiac sarcoid and you go through it again, you still think it's normal. What do you do? It's actually very disconcerting. You either lose faith in the AI because you think it's wrong or you think you're wrong, but you don't know why. You don't know how to write the report. So th this black box thing does have quite big consequences. And I know various um, algorithms and various companies and universities who are writing this software are now trying to come up with ways of, uh, of almost displaying the thinking, aren't they, behind some of these decisions um, to allow people to have more faith in them. But again, that's a whole area of research which is, you know, hasn't really, I don't think, reached the clinic as yet. That's right. And I'm actually quite wary of some of these methods. Um, there's one called saliency mapping you see in a lot of papers. There's one called class activation mapping that you see in papers. But in my experience, they're of limited utility. And they themselves, ironically, are usually quite unexplainable. So I, I think a lot of work needs to be done in that. And just in the last five minutes, James, maybe we can ask you to, to look into the future, perhaps as a as a cardiac imager like yourself or as a, a budding radiologist. I mean, where do you think we're going to be in five years? You, you made it sound like um, many of these tools are coming and some of them are going to make our lives much easier. We all remember as research registrars, as you say, drawing endless circles on MRs and, and, and CTs and echoes, and that presumably will go away. But how do you see the landscape changing in, in five years? And would you recommend people still going into radiology, uh, non-interventional radiology, so we say? Absolutely. Um, I think we are all going to be using AI. There's an old saying that is a bit passe now, but actually is very true, which is um, AI will not replace radiologists, but radiologists that use AI will replace those that don't. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. There is a radiologist shortage, and actually we need many more radiologists, and therefore AI will in a way be a savior of the specialty. But there are lots of things that AI we are realistically not going to be able to solve until we come up with a lot better ways. AI cannot cope with the weird and the wonderful because it can only diagnose things and segment things it has seen before in great number. And we do not currently have the ability to train neural networks to identify diagnoses that are very rare. And therefore, the human brain realistically is not going to be overtaken by AI in the near future. And I suspect not for a couple of decades, personally. But a lot of the boring tasks we do are going to be broken down imminently. And we should have said that, actually, that particularly the deep learning methods that you mentioned do need vast numbers or vast amounts of data, don't they, of all the different classes before they can be trained in a satisfactory way. And that's again, is one of the downsides, I think, of, uh, of deep learning. Absolutely. Realistically, uh, if you took the entire data set out of a single hospital and trained an AI, that AI is not going to be able to say, oh, I think this is Fabry disease, for example, because in an average year in an average hospital, even doing cardiac MRI, the numbers of Fabry diseases are pretty low. And it sounds silly, but one of the issues with deep learning is you have to make sure they're learning and not memorizing. And if you only have a few examples of each type, it's easier for the neural network to memorize examples than learn to generalize them. And so that is going to be an issue going forward. And people are trying to get through that, but the regulatory hurdles between opening up lots of data, typically without patient consent, 
is currently precluding us from sort of getting these massive data sets for training. And also the question is, if you do do that, who owns them? Mm, absolutely. It's a tricky subject. And can I just bring you back to that last point then? So what, what would you say the difference is between memorizing uh, and learning? Uh, where Where is the is the uh, network going wrong there? Well, that's the, that's the thing. The network, bless it, is not actually doing anything wrong. If you have, let's say you have a thousand patients and one of them has cardiac sarcoid and you put them all in the neural network and you want it to learn whether it's cardiac sarcoid or not. How is the net? Let's say the patient with cardiac sarcoid also has breast implants, just completely coincidentally. How can the neural network possibly know whether it is the hook sign and the insertion points that it should be learning to diagnose cardiac sarcoid or the breast implants? It is incapable. It is an unfair expectation of it. So you add another patient. Okay, this patient doesn't have breast implants, so it can't just rely on that. It'll still probably tend to increase its likelihood of saying sarcoid of the breast implants. But let's say this patient is six foot three, and the other patient was six foot three as well, and therefore their hearts were quite big. A big heart's more likely to be cardiac sarcoid, and you get all these coincidental patterns. And only by having enough examples where you can find the needle in the haystack, the actual signal that matters, do you have a model that will actually work well in the future. And that's one of the issues with convolutional neural networks. They can actually learn very quickly. Um, you don't need many examples to train a CNN, but you need lots of examples to train it not to overfit, not to cheat. Yeah, I've seen some examples in the literature relating to COVID where some of the um, some of the normal chest X-rays, we say, were were taken on pediatric patients, and the network very quickly learned to to any any that had a pediatric type X-ray was going to be normal regardless of whether they had COVID or not. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you, that's not a that's not a fault of the neural network, sure. unfortunately. Yeah. It would be it would be ridiculous if it wasn't able to identify such an obvious signal. But it just means that when we're curating, creating these data sets, we need lots of data and we need good data. And finally, where can people go to to find out more about getting into machine learning as doctors? I mean, how did you get into it yourself, James? Is it something you've been doing for a long time or did you pick it up as, as a preparation for your PhD? And how did you go about it? I think there's sort of two routes that doctors can go to get into AI. The first thing is they can join a team that is doing AI and they can contribute their skills as a doctor. And there is huge demand for this. Lots and lots of companies, but lots and lots of researchers want to work with doctors, want to provide them expert input to help them label data, but also to help them design systems that actually benefit doctors. And that's a big shortcoming. Um, engineers cannot be expected to understand their medical workflow. And the best way of doing that is to approach a current group that are working, publish papers and things you're interested in, and ask them if they'd like another set of expert hands. And believe me, they will definitely say yes. The other way to do it is actually you want to do the AI, so to speak. You want to program it, which is not as difficult as you would think. Basically, all AI programming these days, at least deep learning, is done with a Python programming language, which is very accessible. And so I always say to medical students and junior doctors who want to speak to us, learn Python first. And then again, find a group that's working with things. See if you, know, you can join them. See if you can learn what they do. Um, there's a Stanford course in convolutional neural networks called CS231N. All the lectures are available 
on YouTube. All you have to know is basic Python. And they will explain to you how convolutional neural networks work from the ground up. So that's also an excellent way to get involved. But it just depends on what role you want to play. Absolutely. Yeah, not everybody wants to or needs to do the actual coding themselves. As you say, many, a lot of people are looking for that advice and that domain knowledge that doctors and uh, other healthcare professionals bring. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much for your time, uh, James. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I think you've simplified this this complex uh, subject very nicely. And I'll make the, the two papers both free for a few weeks after the podcast comes out so people can uh, go and enjoy them. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.